filmmaker, writer, producer, and showrunner Lisa Joy knows a thing or two about making great TV and crafting shows that endure. The co-creator of Westworld, one of the grandest, most ambitious sci-fi shows ever made, Lisa started her career as a writer on Pushing Daisies and has worked on several shows since. She also wrote and directed the 2021 feature film Reminiscence, starring Hugh Jackman. And if that's not enough, she's also a producer on multiple shows such as last year's The Peripheral on Amazon Prime Video, along with the highly anticipated upcoming Fallout series on Amazon, which is an adaptation of one of the most popular games out there. At the recently concluded Geomami Mumbai Film Festival, which had several incredibly exciting masterclasses, I was lucky enough to moderate a session with Lisa on the art of long-form storytelling. In front of a live audience, we spoke about the Hollywood model for creating series and what we can learn from it here, what world-building tangibly looks like, what the heck a showrunner even is considering we still seem to have different definitions of it here, how to navigate a writer's room as a young writer, and a whole lot more. It's a conversation I'm incredibly proud of, and Lisa had a great deal of wisdom to offer aspiring writers and series creators. I think I'll just start by saying uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being at Mami. Thank you for being in Mumbai. It is lovely to have you. It's such a pleasure to be here. It is a lifelong dream to visit India. And so I've been making the most of it. I've traveled all over the country. It's great. Uh, are you ready to drop some wisdom? <laughs> well, I can drop my, my version of experience, which might be wisdom. You can learn from my failings. Uh, I want to start by talking about world building, uh, which is a term that gets thrown around a lot. Um, but I and not enough is said about sort of what that tangibly looks like. Uh, but I want to start by quoting something you said. And I think the session is going to be a lot of quoting you back at yourself. So I apologize in advance. Um, you said the magic of a really great movie or really great TV series is that they never lose their luster. And they still have the ability to leave you awestruck with wonder and make you think no matter how old you are when you watch them. And I think your work in particular really encapsulates that because you you really transport us to these fantastical, often futuristic worlds, um, whether it's through Pushing Daisies, which is you know where you started your career as a writer, whether it's through your show on Amazon, The Peripheral, which you're a producer, whether it's through a little show you guys might have heard of called Westworld, which you co-created, uh, whether it's through Reminiscence, your film from 2021 starring Hugh Jackman. Um, and I want to talk about Reminiscence and Westworld in particular, because they're such richly realized, very visual worlds. And, you know, with with Westworld, to put it very simply, it's about a futuristic world where robots are gaining sentience. Um, reminiscence takes place in a dystopian future where, you know, cities are sinking and, you know, uh, the world has gone to shit and people get around by boat because of climate change and people are sort of living in the past and choosing to relive their memories because there's nothing, there's no hope left in the real world. So what does... When you're ideating and imagine, imagining these worlds, what does world building really look like? How much detail are you really capturing on paper and, and sort of in deciding what these worlds look and feel like and how they function? Um, I think it, it's funny because I'm a terrible, terrible actress. The last time I acted in anything, I played broccoli in a, in a school play. I was, I was literally a vegetable. Um, because I'm scared of acting and rather stage fright. But I do think that when you're writing, there's something about being a, um, a sort of theoretical actor. You know, you sit there in your mind, you know, clothed in the body of a different character from a faraway land, or it could be a different gender, it could be, you know, from the future or the past. 
And for me, world creation is about inhabiting the eyes of that character and looking around at the world, you know, and seeing what's there. So I, I kind of do it from a very um, micro to macro way, you know, and I think also I do a lot of research, um, read a lot of philosophy, look at, look at other people's works, but I think to create the future or any kind of world that is believable, you have to look at the trajectory of the now and see where it's going. You know, I, I do think that it's impossible to create any near future scenario without taking into account global warming. You know, it, it seems like a heightened conceit and reminiscence, but it's not so heightened. You know, I, I, I had my honeymoon in the Maldives and I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to go back there for, you know, my future anniversaries. So I think it's just a combination of that kind of projection of self um, mixed with study. But if we were a fly on the wall watching you in this process, what are we looking at? Is it endless typing? Is it sort of massive whiteboards covered? Like, what does that really look like when you're creating worlds? The way that I do it tends to be because I'm visually oriented and also I like to doodle a lot, <laughs> um, which helps me for some reason. I feel like my pen is moving even if my mind has stopped creating words. Um, so I use a whiteboard for the most part and, you know, and draw over that. But when we were doing Westworld, um, I was pregnant when we started breaking it. And we had this one room that was supposed to be the nursery, but at that moment had nothing in it. And we filled the whiteboard. And then we just kept filling more and more papers and taping them to the walls. And then we taped them to the windows. And we, by the time we were done, the entire room looked like an insane asylum because it was just plastered in papers everywhere with uh, different strings of causality and different timelines. You know, we, we thought of it as, as though we were making a watch you know, where all the gears have to move together. So even though sometimes you wouldn't see some of the thinking on screen, I think in order to find the story, we had to do a lot of extra work imagining, you know, what are the loops of the characters that play the robots? You know, like where where does the storyline within this go? Where does Hector intercept with this and that and this and that? So we had a whole kind of meta story broken. And then over that, we put... Um, what happens then when you have this clock that's smoothly running and then something like sentience starts to develop and corporate shenanigans and things like that. And from there, we layered out versions of the stories and of course, timelines. I think there's something quite sweet about the idea that one of the most ambitious shows ever made started with, started with doodling. I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's oddly hopeful. It gave my baby to, by the time she was born, um, because we were still working on it then. It, it was a long, it was long labor of love was Westworld and, and the creation of my actual daughter. But um, she would sit there because we were still writing in this little rocker. And Joan and I would stare at the whiteboard, just stumped trying to think. And my poor baby for like a year was transfixed by whiteboards. Whenever she saw one, she'd be like, I should stare at this thing because this holds endless fascination for my parents. So she was your first audience. Yes. Um, <laughs> I want to shift gears and talk about the Indian landscape for a second. Uh, we were discussing yesterday about how here traditionally it's been all about movies that sort of reign supreme. And in the last sort of six, seven years, we've seen 
the sort of the start of series and I guess what you could call cinematic series through streaming platforms. Um, and as a result, a lot of a lot of people, writers and filmmakers who have always just thought in terms of feature films, you know, structurally, storytelling wise, are now trying to adapt and think in terms of shows, given that, uh, as with many places, uh, the new mid-budget movie is now the show. Mm. Um, so for those people, what advice would you have? Because you mentioned rhythms and stories. So what advice would you have in terms of, I'm someone who's always thought in terms of features, that's been my world, that's my structure, apart from the fact that I'm just splitting it up into chapters. Um, what advice would you have in terms of trying to pivot and tell stories through episodes and seasons? Yeah, they're very different um, uh, crafts and rhythms in a way, right? With a feature, it's almost like uh, a short story, right? You can go in there and paint the most evocative portrait, but there are questions left to the viewer's imagination too, right? Backstories, et cetera. And all those tributaries that a story opens up that you don't answer in a feature, um, and artfully so, uh, in, a, in the sense of a series, you get to explore, right? So it just changes the nature of the form and what, what that art looks like. Um, so I think when writing a series, it's, it's, for me, it's important to know where it's going right, to know um, the kind of tentpole moments throughout a series, right? So nowadays there's six um, episode seasons, um, eight episode seasons. It used to be tw 22, 23, which was madness. It was madness. Um, that's mostly possible when you're doing a procedural, right? Something like Law and Order or something where it's not mythology based, so you aren't like if anybody's life is that dramatic that they can do 23 episodes of it, like even the Khaleesi didn't have that much drama in her life, you know? So it, it lends itself more to this kind of um, uh, format, which which is an enjoyable format, you know, but it's very different. When it's based solely on mythology and it's not procedural, I think that's when you have to look at it in your break. Before I break um, an episode, I break the season, right? I I. Um, look at, you know, six, basically six columns on a whiteboard if there's six episodes. And I know the general things that I want to happen, the turns and the reveals, and I kind of put those in their respective columns. Um, and that's just the starting off point, right? Because as you write, it never stays the same. It never really stays that way. Some of the major turns will stay that way, but the characters and um, the different, the different, um, things you find in production will change the course of it and grow it. I mean, and, and there's also those episodes where you had a kind of white space. You had a space to explore. One of my favorite episodes is one that we did, um, I think it was second season, and it was about the Native Americans in Westworld. And it was all in, you know, their dialect. And it was a very standalone episode, just looking at Akichita and his lover. Um, and that was that felt more like within the trappings of um, TV, we were able to make a little film, right? Because that was a one-off thing, but it had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And uh, we were able to explore that. And that's also really lovely when that chance comes in, because there are times in TV when you feel like you're, you have to put so much plot in, you have to rush. TV is all about rushing. The schedule is brutal much more brutal than film 
Um, and so uh, when you get to take your time and be more poetic with your camera moves and more add like white spaces into it, it's, it's actually really, really lovely. I definitely want to ask you about brutal scheduling, but uh, but first, I thought it would be really helpful to go through the life cycle of creating a single show, because, like I said, it's still a relatively new format here, and it would I think there's a lot uh, a lot of young writers can learn from what ideal looks like. So let's start with pitching. Uh, you are a writer, so you have pitched plenty in the past. You're a producer, so you get pitched too as well. What does a great pitch look like, and how much of the show would you hope? Uh, is fleshed out on paper. I mean, how many seasons are you looking at? How much detail are you really hoping is in that pitch? This is a very good question. Okay, so are a lot of people here writers? Yeah? Okay, so I can like go into like some detail and it will be helpful. Okay. Um, so for a pitch, um, I think they're very important. And it's, even if you don't have a formal pitch, like even if you're, later talking about the show to the network, just getting them excited about it. Like all of it, your ability to advertise and sell your own show is very, very important. It also kind of almost helps you think about the marketing campaign later, right? You're trying to figure out what is that special hook of this show. And so to know that identity, to have it be able to pop is is actually really helpful, you know? So I I do enjoy, I think of pitching not only as you know, selling it to the man, which of course it is, but it's also about refining for me what the parts of my story are that pop and are unique and and testing it on a small audience. Um, I think the first thing, everybody does this differently. Um, for me, there are several categories that I put into a pitch. One, you know, you introduce yourself and the project and, and the highest of, you know, the highest level of terms, right? And, and everybody does this differently, but this is generally what I do and when I'm producing how I advise people to do it, right? So if I'm producing somebody, I'll introduce the writer for them because it's easier to speak glowingly of someone that's not yourself, right? It's, it's a little awkward when you're like, I'm so inspired. Um, and so then, you know, the writer might say, oh, I was drawn to this story because of X, right? Just one little nugget of like, why are you, why are you passionate about this? Why why you for this project instead of him or her? Um, and I do think that you know, TV is such a brutal industry that in success, which everybody dreams of, but then you're saddled with a show that will eat your life for years, right? So hopefully you truly are passionate about that, right? Because God forbid you get lucky on that show you're not passionate about. It's you know, it's tough. Um, so, so to have that passion stated succinctly, um, then I kind of do an overview of the world a little bit. And, and one of the things that I do when I'm pitching is instead of doing it somewhat didactically, like, um, it's a world in the future. Um, there are flying cars and there's this girl who's a gamer and she goes into a game and finds herself in a different world. Right. I instead tell a story, think of it as a short story, you know, like um, Flynn wakes up to the sound of her vacuum cleaner, you know, hovering across the carpet of her shitty trailer home, right? She's that all-American girl 
who's got nothing in her life right now except for a sick mom and a crush on a boy who doesn't even know she exists. The only thing she's got going for her is, uh, you know, fly girl, you know, the alter ego that she has in a sim, a video game called X, right? Like you paint a picture and tell a story and give it a cliffhanger, right? So by the end of the story, it's like, um, you know, and she goes into the world and bam, gets shot in the head. Next thing you know, she's up in her own life and she says, I got to go back, right? So, you know, I just skipped to the end and I'm making something up on the fly, so it's not very good. But what you're trying to do is entrance your audience. They hear 30 pitches a day, right? So to be able to speak in an an alive, living excited way where you paint a picture and they can actually see that world, I think is a very helpful selling point. Um, Sorry, can I just ask in that example that you just gave, it sounds like you are um, sort of allowing us to explore the world through the story. Um, Yes. Because uh, oftentimes sort of a lot of pitches are, here's a a page or paragraph or whatever on the world, sort of separate, and then here's a story. Uh, yes. You try and do both together. And I, I try to I, I try to give a vignette into the world, right? It, where it's like you're giving them a cold open, but you're just painting it with words. And you're trying to get them like a viewer. Like you're literally painting a picture. And I had this theory when I was a lawyer that um, if you have a case, uh, no matter what the evidence is, if you can get the jury to laugh once and you can get them to cry once, you will win. Right. And <laughs> it's maybe an indictment of the American legal system, but we can talk about that later. Um, but I think the same uh, is so for pitches, right? Um, if you get them just kind of appreciating it abstractly, I'm not sure it's enough because they see so many shows. But if you get them to crack up once or nod like they're relating, or you get them to be like, oh, like, you know, feel something in that pitch then I think you have a much higher chance of success um, because you reach something visceral within them. Um, so that's why I tell this story. Now, after that, I still do the rest of the stuff, but it's after having kind of whetted the appetite. So, you know, I'll be like, and then, you know, she wakes up and says, I got to go back in, right? This is the world. There's future London, which is characterized by this, and there's this world, which is characterized by this. And here are her friends who, you know, this person's like this, this person. And then you kind of colorfully describe these people and the mise-en-scene. You can even describe a little bit of the shooting style, right? Like if I'm doing something that has um, fighting in it, right? Um, You know, I really like fight scenes, but I'll try to explain why is this kind of fight scene gonna look different from a different kind of fight scene? You know, what, what about it will be more than just a montage of punches and kicks. Um, so I think that's it. You know, at the end, after talking about the world, talking about the characters, you can talk about generally where the season is going to go. You know, I think that's like, you know, a couple pages. Generally, a pitch is about seven to 12 pages, I would say. Um, you start to lose people after that anyway. Um, and then if you want to, to you can talk about theme. Right, which I like to keep short because it's very airy fairy. But in my experience, networks love theme because it's something that they can talk about. They're like, I love that theme, and it's like non-specific enough that they can <laughs> really 
just dive on into that theme, right? Like the theme of eternal love, the theme of, you know. It's always trauma. Nowadays, it's just always trauma. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. But so talking about the theme and in some way hinting it, saying, not hinting, you're saying you're being quite explicit about why is this important today, right? Why, why is this story going to, why is the theme of this going to reach people? Um, so I kind of tend to wrap it up with that. Can I just say that's a show I would watch the hell out of. Uh, a lawyer <laughs> defending a serial killer who makes a jury laugh. I would watch that. Um, I, uh, the other aspect of pitching I wanted to ask you about was if you're a, a young, I, I think this applies both to you receiving pitches as well as pitching to platforms. What are the, are there sort of specific red flags you look for either from a streaming executive or from someone pitching to you where you're like, like that immediately tells you that no, there's some sort of, yeah, there's something that puts me off about this. A lot of people have great ideas but don't really know how to land the plane, right? Um, don't really know how to draw it out over the course of a season. And that's really important. Like when, when people are studying TV, they shouldn't just look at pilots. And I still do this to this day. I do it with my friend shows. You know, I, I've looked at um, Game of Thrones that Dan and Dave did, and I've, I've, analyze the episodes um, and seeing like, okay, when does this happen? When does this happen? Because I'm not just looking for the rhythm of a episode. You're looking for the rhythm of the entire season, right? And, and, you know, to study other people is one way of getting a feel for how complex that is and how much you have to embed in season, in episode one, if you're going to have it pay off in episode eight. So there's a degree of study there that is different to a film, right? A feature, which you you don't have to take that into consideration. And I think, you know, I'm I'm a producer and I'll help with the writing and directing where necessary. But again, this has to be somebody's passion project, right? If, because I I can't show run for someone else if I'm a producer. They need to want to do it and want to live it and and be there's no call to anybody else that you can make to fix your final three episodes, right? If you're a showrunner, it's on you. There's there's no one else to look at. I mean, you can look at the producer. The producer will help. But what you really want is somebody who feels the gravity of that position and is just really wholeheartedly invested in telling that story and knows that they have to see it through, right? Knows that it's not just about getting an episode on the air, but it's about telling the story. A lot of the... Um writers and streaming executives I've spoken to in the past as well as ahead of our session one sort of area that constantly comes up in conversation where uh, people just seem to be trying to figure it out is the idea of the writer's room um, which is again a relatively new concept here sort of maybe five six years old so I just wanted to first ask you on a very generic level what because every I know it's a very case-by-case -case basis depends on the show uh, and a whole bunch of stuff but what according to does the idea does a good effective efficient writers room look like how many writers would you have in there what is that hierarchy like uh, what are those timelines like because i still think it's everyone seems to sort of you know be going for it in a different way i mean everyone does go for it in a different way um and it, it kind of depends on your work style too you know i'm very um in my head and i tend to learn by explore things by writing so even when i'm in a room I'll project my laptop onto a screen and instead of saying the pitches, I'll type them and people just know. I just, I can't think by talking. <laughs> it's, it's weird. There's some kind of disconnect in my brain. So I'm not actually a typical showrunner in that sense, right? Um, you know, I've worked with Jonah, my husband, who is very much a showrunner. He likes to stand there and 
talk and solicit ideas and you know this and that and i'm i'm more like a burrower you know i like a small small group i, I think honestly maybe because um i'm just more internal and a little bit shyer um so there are so many different ways to do it um i think one of the things that's interesting is there's, you know, there's there's a kind of hierarchy in, you know, who's more senior, who's more junior. It's not necessarily where the best ideas come from, though, you know. So I try to make sure that um, I'm listening to everybody. But there's also a moment where sometimes the room just devolves into chaos. If people are so into their own idea, but you're trying to keep them on a certain track, right? Because you want to be polite. You don't want to cut people off. But at the same time, like at a certain point, a decision must be made and you have to keep making the show. And you're surrounded by brilliant people with wonderful ideas and their own strong, strong opinions on where to go. And it can feel like herding cats, you know? And so there's a little bit of, you know, managerial panache that has to occur in saying, Yes, that's wonderful, but let's get back to more this area, you know, of, of this. Um, and that can be hard, you know, writers are, are sensitive, and, and I truly believe, like, everybody has their own story to tell, you know, but when you're in a writer's room, you are servicing somebody else's story. And, and that's a, that's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a social tact thing where you kind of watch to see, am I helping right now, or... Am I talking just to talk <laughs> or am I, you know, um, and trust me, I've been a writer, I've been a staff writer um, on many shows and I'm sure I've annoyed a lot of people um, and, you know, helped some people. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a delicate dance. Um, but I prefer personally, and now after the strike, there are some guild minimums to how many people you can, you must have in a room, um, which I know a lot of people felt <clears throat> some reservations about. Uh, I like a smaller room. Uh, for me, it's so important to have that trust. You almost become a hive mind, you know? And for me, I don't like having a lot of ego in my work. You know, I don't like to think of them there as being a separation. Like, if there's a good pitch that didn't come from me, I'm overjoyed because it's going to the show. <laughs> you know, it, it it's glory for everyone, right? And it's exciting to me to be around people uh, whose ideas are are better than my own or that, you know, um, enhance my own. To me, that's a wonderful thing. And, and I also believe in giving credit to those writers. You know, um, there are some showrunners who um, don't give credit as much to other writers. Um, but to me, the reason why you're a showrunner is you're a manager and you're giving them their start and you're creating a record for them. So even if you are rewriting them, um, it doesn't matter because they've, they've been there, they've done the work, um, and you're trying to help them build a career. Does, um, in terms of sort of making and staffing that room, does genre play a difference at all? The reason I ask is, um, everything here that was ever made in terms of a show in the last five years has either been a crime drama, looked like a crime drama, like it's always, we love gangsters, we love guns, it seems to be the only thing everyone's greenlighting. So does that, if you were making a 10 episode crime drama, for example, does that, have a bearing on what you think an efficient room looks like, even hierarchy-wise, or is it really a case-by-case -case basis? I think it so much depends on the writers that you have. You know, I, I was looking at a, a, we have a crime dra drama right now that we're looking at, and sometimes you have somebody who's great with dialogue, right? And that's great, and great with character, and that's great, but you still need some 
somebody else then who's great with reversals, especially in a crime drama, right? You need somebody who is looking at the math of the crime and the finding out about the crime and the investigation. And that's a very different muscle to, you know, dialogue. There are some people who are good at everything across the board, right? But other people have strong spikes in one area or another. Uh, sometimes you look for somebody with actual work experience in that area, you know, or experience in what that character is going through so that they can speak from a personal place and tell you about it, right? Um, and so I think it's more about trying to find this bouquet of writers by picking people who are bringing certain things to the table and mesh well together. Uh, another thing that comes down to writers' rooms, which uh, I've heard from just sort of friends and writers a lot, is that sort of painfully familiar scenario where people will say, look, I'm a young writer, I've got myself in a, in a writer's room for a big platform, uh, you know, I can't believe it's happening, except the power dynamics are terrible, I, you know, uh, nobody's taking, it's not about ideation, I'm expected to transcribe, um, this tends to happen a lot more with female writers, unfortunately, and and it's literally, I'm expected to execute, and it's just not an, an environment where I feel like, you know, I can contribute, um, how do I now, and, and here, you know, that, that mad dash to get your first credit is, you know, you're expected to compromise so much because that makes a big difference. So as, as a young writer or a female writer, how do I navigate that? How do I figure out how to be assertive um, without feeling like I'm going to lose my job? I, that's, a very, that's a very tricky um, thing to navigate for, for anybody. I think some battles you're just never going to win. Right, there are some people that you work for, and you know, if you're working for somebody who's really sexist or really racist, you're not going to make them unsexist or unracist by the beauty of your prose. Right? They're just they're going to read it and dismiss it because they will have an inherently sexist or racist gaze. Right? Wouldn't um, that be amazing, though? <laughs> yeah, it'd be like, I've changed. Um, yeah, I love women. Um, uh, so, I think part of the m most difficult thing is. As a writer, you know, it's a it's a fragile, it's a mentally fragile job, right? There's no answer in the back of the book, you know? And I think a lot of us, we're writers because, you know, we're somewhat sensitive souls who are trying to transcribe our, you know, observations or experiences in this very solitary way. It's just you and a page, right? It's, it's, um not necessarily for like gregarious um, people with unassailable confidence. Um, and so I would say one of the really difficult things when you're working in a somewhat hostile environment would be these are your bosses, or at least for me, you know, and I'm like, you know, half Chinese. I had a very Asian upbringing, which was like respect your superiors kind of, you know, and so if they were saying I was not worthy, I certainly felt not worthy, right? Um, it was hard for me to think, no, rubbish, <laughs> like you're, you're just a jerk, you know, and, and it really, this is part of the ongoing difficulty of, of being a writer is that, that it's easy to doubt oneself, right? If not in a room that's hostile, then you know, maybe the critical reception of something sets you back or, you know, some, some like literally somebody could say one thing and it could stay with you forever about one line that you wrote, you know, just like, oh my God, I'm a hack. Um, and so when you are in a somewhat hostile environment, that really exacerbates it. It's really hard, you know. Um, so I think the thing that's important 
and I'm being realistic here in that I've been in those environments and I haven't been able to, it's not as easy always as blow it all up and leave, right? Because for sometimes that means career suicide, right? I'm definitely not saying one should um, put up with, you know, sexual harassment or things like that, but there's a certain amount of having to figure out how much of it you're going to let in. Like it, you, everybody has to decide for themselves what is the healthiest way for me to proceed, right? And it's often a navigation and you don't always win. I've definitely come home crying from jobs. Um, but the things that I found that are helpful are to have a peer group that you love and admire um, who are generous, there are generous writers and honestly, there are not generous writers, right? And that's okay. It's okay to be a not generous writer, but it's not great if you're a not generous writer paired with a generous writer, right? Like generous writers should stick together and not generous writers should stick together <laughs> because then nobody's feelings get hurt. Everybody's okay, you know? And that's truly what I feel. Like I'm not trying to even put a moralistic thing on it. It's just, it's just how it is. So I found a lot of very generous writer friends and we celebrate in each other's successes and, you know, weep together over our failures. Um, and then the other thing I would say is let it be motivation. You know, there's a certain amount of working up the rank that, ranks that you have to do. You're writing in somebody else's voice on a show. Even if you think my voice is much better than your voice, sir, right? But your, your job is to, um, you know, get your paycheck, write those words and keep chugging, hopefully with minimum trauma. And uh, and if if you can do that, then in some ways I think of being in a room as a day job, and then your night job is the same as everybody's night job, right? You're a dreaming writer, writing about your own things in the evening, late at night, um, and you're completely free to write in whatever voice you want um, about whatever story you want. And that's what I did for a long time in terms of um, writing my own things um, as a sort of unpaid night job for my staffing. Uh, you had a great quote, uh, which I, uh, I heard you talk about in a recent masterclass. Um, I'm paraphrasing you, so please correct me. You basically said that after you face so much rejection, um, uh, sorry, and, and the reason it stuck with me is, is something I really resonated with, um, and I feel like a lot of young writers here would as well. You said that after you face so much rejection, you really, after a point, thought that um, to survive in Hollywood, you have to be an asshole. Um, and kindness is not uh, sort of uh, rewarded. And then you realize it's not that. It's the fact that um, Hollywood is... Uh, agnostic to assholes. So it doesn't matter if you're kind or not. Uh, and I think a lot of writers here would definitely resonate with that as well. Um, you've mentioned showrunners a lot. Um, I, I don't have a cool way of phrasing this question. What the heck is a showrunner? Because everyone here seems to have a different definition of it. Um, and uh, I, I, as I told you yesterday, there are sort of so many people who describe it as what I think it is, which is the creative captain of that ship. And there are others who you know, will say that, no, I just enable the show or I'm producing it or I'm the sort of the conduit between the production and the sort of writers. Uh, so what is that role exactly? So I, I can say what it is in, in America. Um, so basically, it, film is typically a director's medium, right? Um, and uh, TV in America is a showrunner's medium, a writer's medium. Showrunner is always a writer, first and foremost. Um, and... Uh, the reason for that is uh, when you're living with a show week after week after week, it's driven by that narrative, right? It's not, it's not just a one-off thing where a director comes in, does something, 
interprets a script and then leaves. It's you're being carried along because of the script, right? That's why you tune in week after week. Um, and so, whoa. <laughs> um, so because it's a writer's medium, um, when you kind of work your way up the ranks, you become a bit of a producer and you know your title changes to producer as well. Executive producer is what you call a showrunner. There's no actual term, no actual like label showrunner. Like you'll never see showrunner in the credits. Showrunner is just the person you call when the shit is going down and you need someone to fix it. You know that's truly that's who you are, that's who the showrunner is. That's the a network great calls them. Description for that role. <laughs> yeah. Network calls them. The actors call them. The directors call them. Everybody calls the showrunner. Um, the showrunner is the person with the least amount of sleep. Um, <laughs> But um, it's, it's, it's wonderful, though, because you basically take your vision, you write your pilot, you choose the room, you assemble the room, um, you hire the director, um, you hire the actors, you hire the team, uh, and you run the room every day, you talk to the network, you are going to get yelled at if you're not on time and on budget. So you're also doing the finances of it. You're working with the line producer um, and looking at the money. You're knowing uh, the um, shooting schedule and knowing that at any moment it might be 2 a.m. and you're going to have to cut some scenes because you're over budget and you need to save for the finale, right? And the director of the episode that you're cutting the budget for is going to be mad at you. Um, and you're going to have to deal with that, right? And the actor who had that scene is also going to be upset and you're going to have to deal with that. <laughs> um, uh, but it, re it really just involves oversight of every single aspect of uh, the show. Um, and so I, there's no, um, it's very autorial, right? Especially if you're a director too and you're directing your show. Also, by the way, you're in post, you're looking at visual effects, you're choosing music. Every single, every single aspect is run by the showrunner. And now there are roles like, you know, I'm a, I'm a producer as well. And when I produce, I try to be honestly very respectful of the showrunner, right? There are some producers who will come in and take something away from someone. And, you know, if it's going way off the rails or the person has gone completely insane, then yes, I'll step in. Or if they ask me to step in and help, I'll step in. But for the most part, for me, being a producer is about giving advice, kind of helping with the network sometimes. Like, and it's hard, especially for a first-time showrunner, to manage all the things that are going to get thrown at them. Um, and so a producer kind of helps for that. In the best of circumstances, a producer is an advocate for a showrunner and the show itself, also slightly guiding the showrunner um, in order to ensure the longevity of the show if there's a problem. I really appreciate you bringing it down like that. Um, is the showrunner always the head writer, or is it, again, very, very case by case? Okay, so there are times when there is a writer who um, really dislikes producing, right? So he'll still, I'm sure, be involved with casting and choosing the director and all those choices, but he'll be less active on set and he'll choose maybe a um, producer to work on set and deal with everyday problems from actor or production while he stays more focused on writing. So that's another version of it that that happens. Um, but the showrunner is still 
the head writer and you're basically hiring a producer to come in and just kind of regulate and help out on set. You do have to be a little bit careful though that um, the producer that you choose is an ally and not somebody who's going to try to step on your creative freedom. There are times when networks have their kind of go-to producers and they become their go-to producers because they're kind of, you know, trying to, you know, make the cheapest widget they can and, you know, call the network and be like, they're crazy, but I can talk them down. Like, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, there's a kind of an old system where there's a lot of like, especially in America, there's like a lot of old white guy producers who as far as I can tell, honestly, don't do that much and take a huge chunk of money. Um, You're preaching to the choir. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, it's probably, I'm not sure it's great for me to say this, but it's true. Um, and so I, I try not to work with those people, you know, and especially when you're starting off as a showrunner, people will try to pair you with those people. And it's something to be careful of. The other thing that's happened here, again, it, because sort of it's been a feature for film world here in the past, the director is always seen as a big dog. And in a series world, um, a lot of big shows, most of them, it's still the director. You know, it's still considered the, a director's baby. Um, and there have been many times, because that is a very sort of specific shift in the power dynamics, where if it is a writer's medium, as you'd hope, the showrunner should be leading that ship. And then you have directors who come in who are responsible for individual episodes or maybe two, three episodes who are answerable to the showrunner. And we've there were so many examples of shows here where there is a clash where I'm the head writer and I am the showrunner. I uh, And I'm having a sort of a, a clash with the director who's tech. So how, if I was the showrunner, how would you, what advice would you have to navigate that where you have a director who really is trying to take charge because they're used to it? Okay, that's tricky. And that also happens in the States, right? Um, it, it 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 kind of there are certain um you know this has happened to my friends they're a showrunner but they'll bring on some very authorial um often male director right and that person will commandeer the set and you know talk to the network like she's crazy she doesn't know what she's doing and kind of kind of run away with the with the show um uh it's quite disheartening <laughs> when that happens to them um, and, and sometimes the directors are really good, right? Uh, and, but it's, they're making their version of the show. They think they're right. You know, my, my friends who this happened to would disagree and be quite sad. Um, I think it's really important to choose a director that you respect and get along well with, to check out their reputation and to be very clear what you want from them, to be able to have a certain amount of transparency, right? Like there are some people who maybe maybe you're fine. Maybe it's fine to be the showrunner, map out the course of the show, and then hand it over to a visionary director that you love who's going to take his spin at it and make it great. You're still the showrunner. It's just the director is, you know, is also taking a really big piece of it. But he's not rewriting the scripts, right? he could give you notes to rewrite the scripts and, and you can take them or not take them, right? Depending on if you like them and also if, um, you know, hopefully the studio believes in you as a writer, right? If they don't, then you're in a bit of trouble. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's a lot of times if the director is only doing one episode, right? They're not going to 
they're not going to be there for the next episode. Like it's, it's you, like the buck stops with you. So um, those power struggles are a little less in some ways if they're just doing a pilot. Um, if they're doing every single episode, then in a way they are also being so autorial that maybe they should have a bit of more of a discussion with you in the, um, in the show. I mean, for me, um, you know, Westworld pilot was directed by my husband. So, um, that was a very clear, you know, synergy, you know, it was, it was great. And, and it was just an extension of the writing. And, um, when I've seen other directors, Peripheral was directed by um, Vincenzo Natali, who I had worked with as a director on Westworld. And I knew he had a great eye um, and it was a lovely fellow to work with. And so I knew that he'd be um, great at directing that show. To be fair to the other side, just coming back to writer's rooms, I did speak to two... Uh, a couple of platform executives uh, to get their perspective as well. And um, I interviewed Aparna Parod, who's the head of Amazon Prime Video India um, a couple of months ago. And she said one aspect that still hasn't really been instilled here, which I wanted to get your take on, was the um, efficiency and discipline of churning out future seasons quick. So the fact is you have one show out, season one is out, it's great. But then you sort of, but keeping that machine moving so you can have subsequent seasons out relatively soon, which as you said, it's, it's an insane schedule there. So how do you, how, how quick is that timeline? Um, and what advice would you have for keeping that writer's room going for future seasons? Uh, and what does that look like? Well, I mean, my, my slight pushback to that <laughs> is also, you can't keep going if the network isn't paying for writers, right? And so what often happens is you feel like you're just going to stop. Um, but you'll write a season and you'll be like, here it is. And then they'll want to wait to see how it does and yada, 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 right? And then if it airs well, they're like, oh, my God, we got to get a second season. And like, where are the scripts? And it's like we asked for money to start a room to write the scripts to get into prep. But you said no. And then you just waited. And so, you know, for me, it's like, there's a certain amount of time that any season needs and having a transparent dialogue with your executives about those needs, right, is is very helpful. Like I've had, uh, and I think this is also where a producer can help, but I do very much like to, I'm a pretty straight shooter when it comes to my dealings with networks. Um, you know, I, there's no way to hide the money or hide the time. It's going to, everything's going to out in the end anyway. And because I have a business background, I am very invested in, I will check all the numbers and everything. Um, but um, it, it, it does sometimes involve advocating very hard with the network and saying, you don't need to greenlight us for another season, but we're going to need a writer's room. You're going to have to support us if you want us to be ready to hit the ground running in the event of success. And they don't always do that, you know? But then, okay, so say you do have what you need. I, it, look, I, if you want seasons to be churned out again and again, then you really have no hiatus, right? You don't get one. Um, the second you're done with season one, you maybe take two weeks and you're back in the room for season two. To me, that's how you get a show on the air every year. And if there's any kind of stalling in that process, then 
it's it's you know it is what it is it's not going to happen at that rate on average how long does it take for one season from the point of getting it greenlit from a network or platform to that show being say delivered to the platform how long does that take roughly it depends on the show yeah you know um it depends on honestly often the networks will have their own they have their own slates and their own plan on like when to release things optimally. So that's also part of the calculation. It doesn't necessarily just get aired the second it's it's ready. You but know. What about just from the point that it's greenlit to the point that it's ready? When they release it is a whole other calculation. Um. So, I would say it's funny because you can make an episode, and maybe in two months see it on the air right so when you're doing procedural that's what it is you're not finishing the whole season first and then airing it you're literally running and gunning editing and then it's on the air there's no time to finish everything in advance you know but what about that 10 episode streaming world 10 episode streaming world i would say you know six months for a writer's room um and then maybe another six months, about a year to shoot. I mean, this it's everything's different. It depends yeah. on the... It's very know. hard to generalize it. Yeah, and like the, how ambitious the production is and if it's international, yada, yada, yada. But I'd say it's about, it's about, you know, nine months to a year. Same mm -hmm. as to incubate life, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. No, I was talking to an uh, executive at a platform here and he said now it's probably down to on average, in his experience, 18 months, not including the extremes. Yeah, so I guess we're not doing too badly, hopefully. Yeah, that's not so bad. I mean, certainly, that's uh, Westworld took a long time. But it's it's also, you know, there's this saying um, in America, how does it go? Um, you can have it fast, good, or cheap. Choose two. <laughs> right? So it's like, if you want it to be... Uh, good and fast, you know, like you, like it's either cheap or you have to like really spend the money, right? So they have the resources to do it. So it's, it's, it's a negotiation with the network. It it truly is, and and I don't mean like a negotiation in the, I mean the network might construe it this way as like we're playing a game, but for me it's like you tell me what kind of show you want, like what what air date do you want? You tell me, and then I'll tell you realistically what it takes to get to that air date, what resources we need. Um, what schedule we need. And so it's a bit of an iterative process. Uh, I will ask you just one more question and then we can open it up uh, to questions from the audience. And I've got a bunch of questions people have submitted to me as well. Um, you said in an interview that the good thing about being a showrunner is you make your own rules. So is there anything you do specifically, either when it comes to writing or production or any part of the showrunning process, any sort of small specific practices that you wish more shows did? I like to hire a very diverse writer's room and a diverse crew and cast. I think that's um, helped the strength of my writing and the shows. Um, and it's important to me. It's also the more diverse the room, the less kind of marginalized the voices feel. You know, I remember being like the only woman or only person of color in, in rooms and it, it's hard to, to, you always need what I call like a seconder, like somebody who will be like, yes, and, and, and reiterate what you said. Otherwise, there's this habit, it happens to a lot of women um, and minorities of like, I call it the Zephyr effect. You'll pitch something and it'll be like, a little Zephyr wafts through the room. 
and no one hears it. And then some dude will be like, what if, and say the thing you just said, not even knowing that he's just repeating the Zephyr. And everybody's like, brilliant, it's brilliant. Um, and so that's the, you know, that's the Zephyr effect. And in order to um, avoid being a Zephyr, you, you need a seconder. You need the guy who people do listen to to be like, did you hear what this person said? Did you hear that Zephyr? This was that thing. And so I think having allies on, on a show too who will do that and, and support um, kind of new voices is important um, and, and very valuable. Have you ever had that uh, self-important, annoying guy who goes, I think what she's trying to say is, just to like repeat what you're saying. Um, of course. <laughs> uh, with that, we will open it up to the audience. If not, I have a whole bunch of questions people have support. Uh, I'll, we'll take the one right at the back first. Hi, my name is Momita. Thank you for such beautifully curated questions. The answers were so insightful. I have a question. Um, since the lead writer is a showrunner, right? Uh, a lot of times, very good stories come from writers like, he is supposed to be the lead writer, but he has not done a show before. So it is a little difficult for the platform to show some faith into the writer to be the lead writer or to be the showrunner per se. How do we navigate that as producers? Mm. You're here to solve all of our problems, by the way. Yes, that is tricky. And that is not just um, here. That, that happens in America a lot. And look, the truth is showrunning is a very difficult job and if you can find somebody to co-show run with you you know at first you might think they're stealing my glory but at one point you will think thank god i can go home you know um but you'll only feel that way if they're actually a great collaborator and you're happy to share your success with them you know and and i think that's where choosing your partners is wise like i did westworld with jonah and i don't think either of us would have survived it alone Right. Um, and those kinds of um, executive producers who will come in and co-show run when they're generous and good and a good fit with the writer, that's not so bad. If, however, it's not a good fit and they're not generous, it is uh, hell on earth. Um, and it's it's often quite hard, honestly, to to know what you're getting into. You know, as producers, um, my company and I, we try to. Um, look out for the showrunners in that sense and make sure that they're paired with somebody who will be supportive and not um, detract from their work. Any others? Uh, we'll take one right from the front. Hi. Uh, firstly, thank you so much for a wonderful session. Um, so many wonderful questions were asked, but one question you know that I have always been tempted to ask writers is the question about writers. Uh, and actors, you know, and how they work in pairs. Uh, Westworld is a show, you know, wherein you had the luxury of working with so many great actors, you know, female, male, you know, wonderful actors. And YouTube is full of, you know, those breakdowns of Anthony Hopkins, you know, Ford and, you know, Man in the Black and his origins and backstories. So I just want to understand from you how big a luxury it is, you know, to have these wonderful actors at your disposal. And if you could also give some, you know, maybe examples if as and when you face any difficulties, you know by, you know, when you had these so many wonderful actors, but maybe something, you know, didn't work out well, if you can, you know, give any example from your time on working on Westworld. Um, something that didn't work out well? Oh, you want the tea, okay. Um, um, Who's sleeping with who? Yeah, exactly, that's, that's great. I, I hope we're recording, are we rolling on this? Um, uh, I, I have, honestly, I have loved 
working with all of my actors. I have, I'm not lying. Um, uh, I'll tell you a story about one that was off to a rough start later, but I, I am being honest. And I think the reason why I've had a good experience with my actors, and I've had actors get mad at me and yell, not on, not on my own shows, but um, on a different show. Um, but I think that when it's my set, when it's my show, to me, everyone is a person, right? You can be the most famous actor in the world and you will get the same respect as the craft service person, right? Because we are all people and we're all doing a job together. And, you know, <laughs> but it's true, right? That really wouldn't fly here, but I appreciate <laughs> But <laughs> I think it's also, it's important, right? To remind, and it, it starts with you, right? If you're not putting on airs, then uh, it should shame other people into not doing it, right? Um, I've also worked with very decent people. I do have a rule about not working with assholes, you know? So if somebody's famously toxic, no matter how great an actor they are, I will, I will never work with them. Um, so I've worked with some lovely, lovely people. I, I also think, to be honest, like it's hard to be an actor. Your face is out there. People have all sorts of suppositions about you. You're treated very differently from a normal human being. And in some ways, I think it's a relief for an actor to be able to talk to a showrunner and the showrunner is going to treat them like a normal person, right? Like they have to treat them like a normal person because otherwise, how do you give notes? How do you demand that they show up on set on time so that you can make the show? And you know, you have to, you have, to have a mutual respect as people that is literally equal. Um, otherwise it doesn't work. And, and so I'm very, and I'm also very explicit about that. You know, if I feel that that might be a problem. I will talk about it in an initial interview in casting. I'll be like, this is how it works with me. You know, if you're not okay with that, that's okay. We shouldn't work together. It's no harm, no foul, you know? Um, but you know, I had one, some, not everybody likes you, you know, at the same time you have to respect people, but you can't guarantee people will like you. Um, and I, I remember working with one actor, I will, who will remain nameless, but he's uh, quite iconic. And, um, and he just didn't like me. Right, uh, and I knew it. And some people just don't like you. They get an impression, and and they're not into it, you know. And uh, and then I I had to direct him, uh, and I was scared. <laughs> um, and so I think the thing you have to be as a showrunner or a director or whatever is is brave and forthright, right? So rather than hiding from the fact that I knew not because he was talking about me or anything I could just tell from the energy that he was not quite a like I think he was like what is this girl doing here um so I asked him out to breakfast and I was like I'm not sure that you like me <laughs> that's irrelevant right now right you don't need to like me um I am just going to tell you that we're going to be working together very closely in a moment and uh, you can find, you know, personal things you don't like about me, but you're never going to work with somebody who's more prepared or more on it or more honest with their feedback. And um, if you can respect that, then we're going to be fine. And I think clearing the air, just being very matter of fact and just talking to him like a regular person 
you know, in the end, he was like, you're the, my favorite director, you know, like, it, you know, everybody's a person ultimately. Right. And, and I don't think anybody, people think they want to be treated like deities sometimes, but they don't, you know, it's a lonely life there. Um, and, you know, I think camaraderie and participating together in a creative venture is far more fulfilling than being some kind of God in the clouds all alone. Uh, sorry, who has the mic? Hi. We've got one then. I think we'll take one more from the center. Uh, yeah, go for it. Hi, uh, this is a great session, Sochan. Thank you so much for inviting me for this. Uh, so I have two questions, but they're very short. Uh, because I am a writer, but I'm also somebody who gets pitches because I work for a production house. So I just want to know, basically, that, you know, when you read uh, screenplay books like Save the Cat and stuff, you get a lot of, uh, your first pitch immediately is like, this story is like, this meets that, like The Office meets Wedding Crashers or whatever, just coming in example. Uh, is that still relevant if we are trying to pitch a show to a network or something like that? Do we still need those references down pat in uh, our pitching process, firstly that? And secondly, like Suchin mentioned, right now in India, crime dramas are everywhere. That is what everybody's making. And a lot of it is based on a small town, India, and you know all everything that happens there. And I know for a fact that I read at least 10 subjects on the same thing. So it just puts me off in a way that I don't want to read it once I know that this is about that world. Uh, so how do you uh, differentiate between similar, you know, similar subjects on the same genre, but you know that this has gold while the other wouldn't? Just that. I just want to pick your brain on this. No, that's a that's a good question. I mean, in terms of the this is this meets this kind of pitch, um, I'll maybe do it towards the end of a pitch a little bit. But for the most part, I think um, I'll leave it to the network or studio to come up with that right like um because what if they don't like you know reservoir dogs right i don't want to be like this is reservoir dogs meets your other most hated movie right um so you know hopefully they'll like it and then they'll think of movies they like and be like it's this meets this in a wonderful way um so, yeah, and I mean, honestly, some of my favorite movies are, were not commercially successful, so I don't want to be like, it's this flop for, and this flop, you know, and so, I'm not going to say that. So sometimes it's helpful in relaying tone, but I don't think it's necessary um, all the time. <laughs> um, and then, wait, what was the other question? Uh, it, it was about, like, a crime drama puts you off, but what if it's oh. a good one, right? What if it's, like, the trend that you want to tear your hair out, but actually there's something there, but you just don't have the energy to... I mean, it's it's tough because I, you know, I think if something is unique and great, it, it tends to pop. But this is my problem with, like, algorithms, too, honestly, is, like, <laughs> or just this is just my complaining session now. Um, but, you know, um, these kind of, like, algorithmic um, models, you know, algorithm is just a fancy word for they look at precedent and correlations with success and then repeat it, which is another word for like kind of cliched, right? But, um, but you know, uh, formulaic, it's, it's a formula and so it makes formulaic things is what an algorithm does. And, and maybe formulaic things are successful. Um, you know, we've had a lot of superhero movies. We've had a lot of, you know, so there's, there's a place for that, you know, there's a place for that. Um, but I would also say that 
the most successful shows are the things that an algorithm by definition would not find. They're these black swan outlier things that come in and give the audience a taste for something they never knew they wanted, you know? And so um, I think, you know, the big breakout hits are always like that, right? Um, And so it's, of course, hard to get those on the air because you need somebody who's willing to take a chance and go with their gut. And you need, when writing it, to go with your own gut. Um, So it's rare, um, but it happens. And uh, to me, those tend to be the most exciting shows out there. Um, so there's, there's honestly, there's a place for both, you know, craft goes a long way. Like you can have a million procedurals, but you know, even if they are somewhat formulaic, if they are well-crafted or the characters are written so well that you can't help but love them, that's engaging TV, you know? Um, so yeah, they both work. Uh, I think we have time for just one more question somewhere in the middle. Uh, just before that, I just want to let you know, we have an algorithm here. It's called Mirzapur. It's a gangster drama. It came out six years ago. Everyone's still trying to make it. It's very annoying. Um, last question to you. No pressure. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for your time and like your wisdom. Um, my question to you is with context to the WGA strike. I think it's the first time a lot of us got to even see words like residuals which we have no idea like what that is <laughs> not a thing yeah <laughs> so um you know and we're really happy for you guys that you're able to fight for those rights and get them what happens here for writers a lot of the people will be able to relate is that when we do develop our uh, pilots or our bibles and we spend a lot of time and effort in putting it together and then we go ahead to try and sell it and um, there's often not much guarantee that we would be involved in any aspect of its future, in any aspect of like other seasons. So what would you tell us would be, should be non-negotiable for us as writers to have like those rights for our IP that we're selling? That's a, that's a very good question. Um, I, I think part of this is real politic, right? Like you're not in a system that is geared towards helping you out. And as I, I know, you know, the, the writer strikes sound um, good and they, they are good, but there's also, there is that that happens in the U.S. too, truly. Um, <clears throat> um, so I think, first of all, one of the things you can do is, and I did this with my feature, you know, um, I deliberately... Um, just dropped it everywhere on the same day in the hopes of getting um, a competitive situation, which I did. And then because I had a bidding war for the script from several parties, I was able to negotiate um, my continued involvement <laughs> in said script, right? Um, and and that's that's one way to do it, right? And, and, and that helps also for... Um, if you're a woman, right? I, women tend to get paid less than men. I know that's happened to me. Um, and so that's why I like doing an open market competitive bidding thing. I'm like, let the work speak for itself then. Um, so that is one way to do it. The other thing I would say is, um, and this is, I guess, more to the production companies then, right? Um, is I think we're in this business for a reason. We're in it to make stories that endure delight and move 
We're not making toothbrushes, right? Um, and for that, you want the best storytellers you can get. Um, production companies have competition just like writers do, right? If I wanted the best storytellers in India, it sounds like what I would do is um, try to build a brand about supporting those voices and nurturing them in a hope to attract the best and brightest and get the best shows and we can all become filthy rich together, you know? I think there is a um, space in the market for changing the way that people approach it. Is that if everybody is doing one thing and valuing one thing, then I think a interesting production house should try a different tact, right? Or maybe a fledgling production house should try a different tact. And so that's me not really talking to you, but talking about the industry in general. Um, I think that would be um, an interesting way to do it because I do think that story sells. I think that underlying which movies do well and which don't, you know, writers are very unsung heroes. I think that writing is the thing. I think it all rests on the script, you know, and I say this as somebody who loves directing and loves producing. I think it's all about the writing. I think it's so fundamentally important and underappreciated um, and sometimes undervalued. Um, and so for me, it's just a smart business move to value writers in order to attract the best ones. Thank you, everyone. Lisa, thank you for the worlds. Thank you for the wisdom. Thank you for the stories. Thank you.